0: Well, happy New year first uh, it's it's great. I'm here uh, teaching a, a seven day. and so there's ninety one of us uh, up the hill here who have were sitting for six days and then last night uh, we kind of did a ritual of taking um, uh, what the things we wanted to get rid of and the things we wanted to take on for the year. And it's so great to have had the kind of uh, quieting and really, this ability to kind of uh, soften and let go of kind of all of the uh, what holiday stuff and really settle in and then really look at what um, is possible in a sense of uh, what are we? We're really, a lot of this is what is our intention and motivation towards things. So I'm playing hooky uh, and I'm down the hill uh, to kind of present for Jack while he's uh, off at IMS, uh, teaching the New Year's retreat there. Uh, so, tonight. First, I'd like to just start by acknowledging, uh, really, uh, when I teach, is, is that uh, I don't know a lot. And, um, and this is quite a mystery of, uh, of being here. And so there are a lot of unseen forces and kind of uh, collective, um, really unconscious, that is actually in play. And uh, I feel it's important to acknowledge uh, that first of all, is sort of the unseen. Uh, The second piece I would like to kind of bring to you is that one of the practices uh, here is sitting. It's also uh, how do we listen? And so a Dharma talk actually can be, um, you can kind of just be off and hear little pieces of it. Or you can really put your full attention here. And for me, a lot what that means, as far as practice, is putting 80% of your attention actually in your body. So right now, as you sit here, there's kind of your butt on the chair, the pillow or bench or whatever. And there's a sense of grounding the mind. And there is actually a sense of, there's a capacity for peace simply available to you here and now. The third acknowledgement is um, that in doing this practice uh, we do it first of all uh, to find, in a sense, a sense of peace and freedom for ourselves. But the ultimate part of this practice is really Uh, for the benefit of all all our relationships, all the contact we make. that if we come from the place of peace, then we have the capacity of actually changing the world uh, in the simplest way. And so it's a simple piece I want to acknowledge because this is a practice for the benefit of all beings. So to start the talk tonight, I actually have a piece of humor since I think that's uh, one of the great uh, wonders that holds us uh, and allows us uh, some space or freedom around uh, the self-narcissism we have. Pardon me. That's big words, but it's true. So last week, and it was two weeks ago, I have a 17-year-old daughter, which I will have a little, something I'll speak of this evening later, and she's up at Sugar Bowl um, I live up in Nevada City, uh, which is up in the Sierra Nevadas, and I'm actually in the process of putting a small retreat center together up there, and, and I'm on the teacher's council here at Spirit Rock. And so we went and got her a car. And um, so we found her this nice, kind of pearl white, is just what she wanted. And it was a little station wagon, and, and uh, it was four wheel drive because she's living up on the summit there. And was and had been fixed up and stuff. It was nice. So, so she went up there. Oh, and I spent six hours teaching her how to uh, use a stick shift because she had driven my car, which was an automatic. So I went out and you know we went through the grinding of the gears and all that. So uh, last week I called her and said, "Well, how is everything going?" She said, "Well, fine." And I I said, "Well, how's the car?" And she said, "Well, uh, I hit a little bit over on the right side." (laughs) I said, "Oh, really?" And she said, yeah, "I just broke the little, uh, you know, the light over there." <laughs> and, and so then I called her three days later. And she said, "Well, actually, you know, I broke the one on the left side." <laughs> and I said, "Oh, really? Yeah, just a little plastic thing." She said, "Yeah, but the headlight fell out." <laughs> she said, "But I, I, got some, I got some, uh, what was it? Uh, uh, what do you call that stuff? Uh, duct tape." And I duct taped it on, so it's fine. <laughs> and I'm going, "Oh boy." So anyway, I thought I'd start out with something. This is actually from Ann Landers, which is uh, uh, <laughs> really good, actually. And uh, I haven't read for a long time. It's Anyway, it's from an insurance company for internal distribution. These are reports that were submitted from policyholders who were asked brief statements describing their particular accidents. So here we go. The other car collided with mine without giving warning of its intentions. <laughs> Some of these I can't read. I mean it's it's too much. Oh no, I can't read that one. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment.
1: <laughs>
0: the accident occurred when I was attempting to bring my car out of a skid by steering it into the other vehicle. <laughs> i was driving my car out of the driveway in the usual manner this is this is kind of my daughter's little thing when it was struck by the other car in the same place it has been struck several times before <laughs> well
1: this
0: one's well yeah. anyway i was on my way to the doctors with rear end trouble
1: <laughs>
0: when my universal joint <laughs> gave way causing me to have an accident <laughs> As I approached the intersection, a stop sign suddenly appeared in a place where no sign had ever appeared before, and I was unable to stop in time to avoid the accident. The telephone pole was approaching fast. I was attempting to swerve out its path when it struck my front end. See, some of these I didn't want to read. Here's what it's To avoid hitting the bumper of the car in front of me, I struck the pedestrian. <laughs> so you see, there's a few of those that are not so kosher, baby. An invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my vehicle, and vanished.
1: <laughs>
0: when I saw I could not avoid the collision, I stepped on the gas and crashed into the other car. <laughs> Coming home, I drove into the wrong house and collided with a tree I don't have.
1: <laughs>
0: okay, the last one. The indirect cause of this accident was a little guy in a small car with a big mouth.
1: <laughs>
0: we always need a little of that. So So I have a little haiku I'd like to kind of teach from tonight that I wrote. And it goes Longing for ground Scuffed up shoes Flower open So longing for ground So much of this practice, um, from my experience of it and uh, I sort of um, remember going, I kind of, I grew up in Europe and came here in the 60s and uh, I just say, what if you remember the 60s you weren't there? Then I sort of passed through the Haight-Ashbury and went on to Asia. And <laughs> I had this, I guess it's a cultural uh, delusion. Uh, That somehow this spiritual journey, which uh, I was attempting to um, follow in some way, that somehow that it was out there somewhere, and that somehow that um, through um, fasting and uh, denying the body in some way, that I could gain some form of spirituality. And I remember my first year in Asia, I was sitting up on a hill outside Kathmandu, and uh, my teacher, Thupi um, at the time, I remember we were just sitting there, and he said, you know, you really have it all wrong. He says, you keep thinking somehow through your mind that it's out there. And he said, actually, it's much simpler than that. And he just took and he pointed his finger, You have to go through this. You have to go through this. Longing for ground. This practice is actually, um, in every way, uh, just simply a somatic practice. Uh, It's asking that the mind, uh, which moves faster than the speed of light, And then there's this body, which is actually a chemical and hormonal process that's slow and repetitive, that somehow we have to take these two and bring them together to know, to intuit the world we're in. it's funny because it took me a long time well I think I'm still getting this Uh, simply because um, as a culture uh, it was something I wasn't taught Uh, I was taught uh, quite young that uh, first of all um, that I really couldn't be loved for who I was that Uh, if I learned um, to please and uh, do things for others, then I could be loved. And so there's always this thing of outside myself and this part about survival. And so no one ever taught me to look back and really um, know that actually I am enough. And so the journey was actually to go out and scramble for first uh, this um, world of uh, survival. And so all my attention for survival was uh, looking out, uh, hearing, smelling, tasting. Everything was there. and I came to this practice and then suddenly it was just the opposite it was something I had to reclaim and I didn't even know the first retreat I went to actually uh, and I'd been in Asia for a couple of years uh, it was a 40 day retreat and I remember the sitting down and uh, first of all uh, I thought I was fine and I began to sit and recognize, first of all, that I had lots. I, I started by going back to my life, all the way back to my birth. I'd go over and over. The first 10 days, that's all I did, was go back. I didn't actually do the practice. Uh, but in that process of going back, I realized one of the things I'd learned was to be, first of all, disembodied. I really was not connected to my body. I didn't really know what that meant. And I was in denial of my own suffering, the things that had happened in my life. That I had somehow made them up in some different fashion so that I didn't have to feel them. So there is this willingness to reclaim It's actually a big thing to reclaim. clean. Uh, it starts simply by uh, sitting down and being quiet and your willingness uh, to turn your attention uh, towards the body to acknowledge uh, the discomfort in some way. Because one of the things that uh, we naturally learned, uh, particularly young, was um, that we get kind of hooked on this, <clears throat> that there's pleasant sensations, right, and we want those. And so, and there's a big charge the pleasant sensations. And then on the other side, so we're grasping for those things and trying to you know, keep those. And then this little pendulum swings over the other side, and there is this unpleasant. And we're doing everything, you know, medicate, try, you know, disassociate, um, disembody, to disconnect from that in some way. And the practice is simply to sit down and take whatever comes, whatever comes. And that means sometimes there's pleasantness, which is great. Um, and also there's unpleasantness. And what it's being asked is actually to look at how you operate. How do you operate? When it's uncomfortable, uh, the first things I learned was to turn away from, disassociate, and if it got really bad, you know, medicate or shop or get busy or talk on the phone or you know, drive somewhere or do something but don't allow myself to simply feel and then there is this other which uh, to me is uh, quite remarkable is one of the things I've learned with this practice let's say you know Things come. Ten moments of pleasantness. Okay? You got ten moments of pleasantness. What happens? What do you do with that? Usually, what we do is, uh, we, we, the first two moments, we get it. Wow, this is cool. I like this. And immediately, what happens is we attach to it. And we actually begin to cling and grasp onto that somehow. And what happens when you do that? You lean out of the present and there is a tightening, a gripping to keep and hold that pleasantness. You only had ten moments of it. You got two. You got eight moments of what the Buddha simply called craving, which is a kind of clinging, uh, which is not actually experiencing the pleasantness. Funny, huh? About five years ago I was in Burma and, and I was sitting and, and um, what they did was uh, it was all Burmese and I don't know it was probably about 80 people and I was this Westerner so uh, they put me up front and these people you know they sit quite comfortably like this for literally hours and uh, about hour and a half and that's about max for me these days and my knees are getting a little stretched out and you know... Um, and I would go through, sitting up there, and also, they, I don't know, there was probably a sense of, excuse me, but uh, you know competitiveness or, or looking good, you know, uh, that was there in me somehow. So I'd just stay and sit. And I would go through excruciating pain. And I'd just sit with it, watching. And it was interesting, at one moment, I had this incredible pain in my left shoulder. And I remember it just sort of being there as a throbbing kind of um, awareness. And as I was sitting there, uh, in this kind of lost in the contraction itself, there was suddenly just just a fraction of a second, and I had a memory of being hit as a child. And I could feel, it was like electrical shock that went through my system. And then I allowed myself to feel what that was like. And as I began to feel that, I knew instantly that as the mind had been connected to the body, that it had, in that moment, connected with some contraction, some old story, some uh, that was embedded there, and it was gone. And it gave me so much confidence in the practice because I knew that was gone, that was not coming again. And that the, 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 the heart of this practice was this purification process, uh, this uh, acknowledging that there is a mystery magic that happens when the mind connects with the body and its wholeness, that it doesn't want to hold its pain. It really actually, uh, our deepest nature is actually wanting to be free. and longing. That's what we're all kind of doing here in some way. That there is this spark in us. uh, That uh, it's acknowledging this possibility that we can wake up. uh, We can be more uh, than our um, I don't want to use the word confusion, suffering, suffering, But it is true that we can be more than that and hold more of it. It's interesting in this kind of uh, piece, I would talk of this pendulum that swings back and forth uh, of pleasantness on one side, is one of the things that we were taught simply, which makes this particular practice quite difficult to see, is that there is a charge on pleasant and there is a charge on unpleasant. But as this pendulum swings back and forth, there is a place in the center. And actually that moment is here all the time. And you can actually acknowledge that there is peace available to you. Right now. By not clinging to the pleasant and not pushing away the unpleasant. It's not dependent on that. And the Buddha said, this is very hard to see. He called it uh, quite subtle and sublime. But it's worth it exploring. But we have to see kind of these extremes first. It's interesting in the Balinese culture that, um, and this is just giving you a little contrast of how of uh, one of our cultural differences is that uh, a child's womb for nine months, and then when that child is born, uh, they hold that child for 90 days. That means that child is not, it has been in a body, and so it's held against the body, whether it's grandma, grandma, grandpa, uncle, aunt, brother, sister. That child is held. It's also kind of contained in the blanket. And then there is kind of, uh, uh, it finds its own uh, time uh, to make its changes. And one of the things that culturally happened, at least to me and I think to many of you, uh, was there was some kind of idea how we were supposed to be. And we were supposed to catch up with that in some way. and. What happened out of that was uh, one of the easy things that happens is we split off simply because um, what to do. And this practice is this thing of longing for ground, is our willingness to reclaim something that uh, we split off from and lost a long time ago. So, scuffed-up shoes. You know, uh, we all have past, and we all have... uh, I could probably go around... One of the things that I've been teaching all these years is, uh, I really understand now, people, that we all have suffered, even though we may deny it for a while or whatever. And that every human being uh, has somehow had to struggle uh, to be who they are today. I'll just tell you a little story. it's about my daughter. This was um, some years ago. She was uh, 13, and she decided she wanted to move in with me. And I'm a kind of a, um, a gypsy Dharma teacher. Uh, I'm on the road a lot. So she moved in with me, and, and there was kind of things so I had. I had this woman that would come and take care of her um, while I was off teaching and stuff. But she had been in a lot of trouble before she showed up there. There was like this thing about well, she'd been smoking a lot of pot and kind of hanging, like kind of like her dad years ago. Excuse me, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um, there was a thing that was sending her to a school in Montana, and I said no, I would I prefer to take her than been doing that. And so we kind of made some very simple rules, you know, very simple rules, like, um, uh, you can tell me anything you want, but I just want to know the truth, okay? And you got to call me by seven o'clock and tell me where you are. Simple, right? So we had this agreement, and uh, after about three months and one evening, uh, seven o'clock, and no call, eight o'clock, no call, nine o'clock no call 10 11 twelve by 12 I'm starting to go through that parental uh, thing um, and and I thought well I I'm going to deal with this what is a wise way to deal with this and I had remembered this story from Roy Khan uh, a kind of Zen poet and um, my teacher, and there was a story that he um, had a nephew who had uh, been in a lot of trouble. And so the family had written, the uncle had written, and said, well, please, Boikan, could you come and straighten this kid out, you know, being the great Zen master he was. Yeah. So Boikan agreed, so he went uh, to the house, and he showed up. and he uh, came to the house that evening, and uh, they had dinner, and uh, the young man was there, and uh, the parents, and, and he didn't say a word. He didn't say one word. And he was there really to, you know, give him the old one, two, three, and straighten that mugger out, you know. And he didn't say anything. And as story goes, he sat up all night, and uh, the next morning, uh, and this young man knew what he was there for, but he didn't say anything to him. He didn't, there was no confrontation whatsoever. that. And the next morning, he actually was leaving, and, and in Japanese tradition, uh, the young man of the household uh, went to tie uh, Rotan's shoes, his sandals. And as story goes, a tear dropped fell on this young man's hand. And it was enough for him to know that he had come, and he was concerned, but he wasn't wasn't going anywhere with it. And I thought about this, and I thought of the beauty of that piece. And so that night, about 1 o'clock in the morning, um, I'm kind of at my wit's ends. So I sit down, and I get a sheet of paper, And I began to write, and the first piece I wrote was about fear, about, you know, were you hitchhiking, something happened, I'm really, really scared. And the second one, of course, as you all may know, was, I was pissed off, and so I wrote my anger, about how this was not okay, I don't care, I need to know, this is our agreement. So... Every hour, I would write a paragraph—one about fear, and one about anger. So six pages. And I live up in Nevada City, and this is kind of rural, rural area. And there's kind of this river, and and then, kind of very rural actually. And at eleven o'clock the next morning, I get a call from her, and so I kind of think, of, what am I going to do at this point? She says, "Oh, I'm sorry, Dad. You know, I was—I went out to the ridge and." Uh, I was staying at this house and there was no phone. So I couldn't call you. So I went, oh, okay. So then I drove into town and I picked her up and I said, I'd like you to read this. That's all. I want you just to read these six pages. And that was kind of my teardrop. You know? And it's interesting. And I thought about all this stuff about punishment all the different things I could do. And I realized, maybe um sometimes um, I'm just saying what's up mm-hmm. and it actually it's great it worked and I'm not saying to try this please I'm just saying uh, this piece about scuffed up shoes um there's a great story that Rachel Naomi Remen tells and uh, it's called Tabletop Kitchen Table Wisdom, yes. And it's a story of a young man in Palo Alto who's 24 years old. And he gets cancer. And somehow, being 24, and I have a 24 year old, um, and, I, and this young man, um, he was so stricken that, why me? You know, uh, so young in life. Uh, to lose his leg. and so he went into this deep, deep depression. Uh, and in that process, um, Rachel then worked with him for two years, and uh, kind of doing deep psychotherapy and uh, uh, art therapy, and kind of, kind of bringing this young man uh, out of this. Um, well. D- to accept this truth about his life, and after two years, when they finished their work, um, they come back together in this meeting, and uh, she takes out his work and their early drawings from when he first um, had had um, his leg removed, and. He drew a picture of a vase. And he looked at it and he said, Oh, I remember this picture. He said, And this one is not done. And so she hands him a set of crayons. And from this vase is a vase done. And then in the center of this vase is this crack that goes all the way through the vase. And he's taken a black crayon, and he's drawn over, and over, and over, and over, and over, and over again. And uh, sort of saying, this, this vessel, this body, can never hold water again. And so he takes his crayons, and he pulls out a yellow crayon. And he takes from this crack, In this face he's drawn. And he draws these yellow lines going out in all directions. And he said, you see here, you see where this crack is? This is where the light comes out. This is where the light comes out. And so scuffed up shoes to me is really this uh, acknowledgement that uh, whoever you are, whatever story you have, uh, that actually uh, those things that happen to you are actually, if I may be so bold, to say they are your gifts. And coming to spiritual practice is actually to re-own in some way uh, your old scars, your old stories, uh, those things that uh, you wanted to discard. I have this story, uh, my own story, and um, I spent the uh, first years of my life down in, in um, Central America, and uh, I had uh, little Mayan ladies that were about this tall and about that wide uh, who took care of me, and they taught me their language, uh, which was a uh, um, uh, Indian dialect, Mayan dialect and then and my father had a uh, factory down there and, and um, it was in el salvador and there was a revolution and they burned the factory and we had to suddenly overnight come to the states like that so it was very shocking and i think you know traumatized everybody in the family um, you know, um, and supposedly you know gunfire in the house and things like that and so we came to the states and um, I was about four and a half, almost five. And I uh, stopped speaking. And so I was put into a school for autistic children, at the University of Kentucky, because uh, I didn't speak. Um, so maybe it was my first retreat.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And it was interesting, some years ago, um, And it took me a year and then I uh sort of began to speak again. And um and I've kind of you know I've done kind of my work around that and stuff. And uh have learned some wonderful things about that since then. Uh of the kind of gifts it's given me. The pain it was, and also the gifts. And I want to share one of the pieces because it's been quite a revelation for me uh, about uh, our culture and language and part of why, what was so shocking for me. And it, there was a, actually a Harvard psychologist that uh, informed me of uh, a language situation that in native languages, when a child uh, is taught to speak, that uh, they teach uh, process. So if a ch- if you roll a ball across the floor uh, in native languages, they will teach rolling. So it's a process orientation. What we do here is what do we do? We teach object, ball, ball, my ball. right. So this is it's just okay. it's just how we've learned. And so we've learned this, object relation, kind of ownership, and where they learn process. And what this practice is all about, its most fundamental thing, is switching our awareness from object relationship to that this is a process. And that no matter what goes on, that we are somewhere in that continuum. There is no losing or winning, or it's just part of a process. It's just the rolling that goes on. It's not I or me or mine, it's just a process. And this whole spiritual undertaking is our willingness to begin to recognize that it is simply a process. And it kind of takes some of the sting out. But you have to own your story, your scuffed-up shoes, whatever that is for you, because this third line, longing for ground, scuffed-up shoes, flower opens, is that once you acknowledge uh, the totality, in the sense of the spiritual journey, is that those things that caused you to dissociate or pain in your life uh, from a spiritual point of view are actually your gift. And what they give you is uh, actually your heart. Yeah. Uh, it's what allows you Uh, when you own your own suffering that you can see in the world that uh, you're not alone, that uh, others too suffer. And so that it is the practice then of the heart-opening, because we've acknowledged our own uh, difficulties and um, stories, and that we've learned to own. Uh, in a sense uh, this ground (coughs) this place where we are and then we open our hearts um, to ourselves first uh, which is really the beginning of this process and then we can look outward and begin to um, uh, maybe not see so much the first reaction but what is it below that? Like when there's anger. It's, anger. it's the first reaction. It comes out usually out of some kind of hurt. And then we can see that process and not the first kind of thing that arises. but the cause of that reaction. Okay. Very helpful. This is from Lao Tzu. This piece of flower opens. It is the child that sees the primordial secret in nature. And it is the child of ourselves we return to. The child within us. is simple and daring enough to live the secret, this dharma. It's not an easy, this is not an easy practice. But it's deeply rewarding, and um, I think sometimes the, if If it truly works, if it truly works, um, there's one of these primary things we begin to own. And one of the things I said earlier is this, quite early in the talk, was that um, this is simply about love. You know, I think there are three things that I noticed that are really important. Is one is um, I don't want to be loved. I have the capacity to love, and I'd like to help somehow. Very simple stuff. And what I learned was early that I wasn't enough. I had to do something to be loved. I had to do something to be loved. I had to act a certain way. I had to do something. And I think what's so important about this practice of owning yourself and really getting to know uh, what goes on inside is that you're actually, you are enough. You are enough. Uh, and it's this willingness to uh, reclaim that piece of, you don't have to do anything to be loved. No. Lose yourself for others. No. Uh, it's something I uh, thought was important. But actually, it's this willingness to own yourself and love yourself enough. Love yourself enough so that you can include others. It's much different. Because no. we have a tendency of, of, well, if I really do this, then I'll be loved. Instead of, I love myself enough. That I can include a whole different kind of psychology here, uh, and it comes from this premise, uh, which is really what is the the to me the ultimate goal of this practice, and it's saying I'm an I have the confidence that I'm enough, just the way I am. I don't have to be anybody else. I don't have to be any different. I've got all my little, you know stuff like everybody that comes from the patterning of growing up but I'm enough and that whatever is happening right now around me pleasant or unpleasant that's kind of my karmic whatever that's the stuff of this moment it's enough I don't need more it's enough I don't have to push it away. I don't have to try to hold on to it. Simple. So, I would like to end here with um, my favorite poems. So, longing for ground, scuffed up shoes, the flower will open. Own it. So, this is um, called The Invitation. Probably, it's a wonderful poem. Many of you heard it, but it's something always can be read again and again <clears throat> by Or, Orhai Mountain Dreamer It doesn't interest me what you do for a living I want to know what you ache for and if you dare to dream of meeting your heart's longing It doesn't interest me how old you are I want to know if you will risk looking like a fool for love For your dreams, for the adventure of being alive. It doesn't interest me what planets are squaring your moon. I want to know if you have touched the center of your own sorrow, if you have been opened by life's betrayals, or have become shriveled and closed from fear of further pain. I want to know if you can sit with pain, mine or your own, without moving to hide it or fade it or even fix it. I want to know if you can be with joy, mine or your own, if you can dance with wildness and let ecstasy fill you to the tips of your fingers and toes without cautioning us to be careful, be realistic, to remember the limitations of being human. It doesn't interest me if the story you're telling me is true. I want to know if you can disappoint another to be true to yourself. If you can bear the accusation of betrayal and not betray your own soul. I want to know if you can be faithful and therefore trustworthy. I want to know if you can see beauty. Even when it's not pretty, every day. And if you can source your life from presence, I want to know if you can live with failure, yours and mine, and still stand on the edge of a lake and shout to the silver of a full moon. Yes. It doesn't interest me to know where you live or how much money you have. I want to know if you can get up after a night of grief and despair, weary and bruised to the bone, and do what needs to be done for the children. It doesn't interest me who you are or how you came to be here. I want to know if you will stand in the center of the fire with me and not shrink back, It doesn't interest me where or what or with whom you have studied. I want to know what sustains you from the inside when all else falls away. I want to know if you can stand to be alone with yourself and if you truly like the company you keep in the empty moments. So we're just going to do a short metta. To close here, and then we have some announcements. So just bring your attention to this area of heart. And sometimes it's helpful to actually put your hand on your heart. This is a physical sensing of that area. And we just can start with this uh, really uh, practice of forgiveness as a way to bring us into the present. And first, just starting with yourself. Uh, if there's any way that you may have harmed yourself uh, through uh, your uh, maybe inner judge or inner critic, or times that you didn't listen to the kind of inner voice, or that you abandoned, you abandon yourself, for others. That you extend forgiveness to yourself. And then we can open this on up if there's anyone you can just repeat these words in your mind. If there's anyone that I may have harmed, knowingly or unknowingly, I ask for their forgiveness. And so if there's someone in the your past, near or far, that somehow holds you. And you can see in your mind's eye or by name. And you can just simply ask for their forgiveness. May I be forgiven for my forgetfulness or my anger or jealousy or fear. And then just letting letting them go. And now we can just take this one more step farther. And this is not to acknowledge anybody else's acts, but this practice of being free from our past. And so if there's anyone that may have harmed you, knowingly or unknowingly, that you willingly take on this process of forgiveness. To be free from the past. And now just bringing your attention into this area of the heart and this present moment. And just starting with yourself. You can just repeat these are phrases I use. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be healthy. May I be free from any inner or outer harm. May I have ease of being. May I awaken and be free. And just allowing this to actually be in your body, uh, so, we extend this message out to all the organs, and the blood and the lymph, and all the all these mystery systems that uh, allow us to be uh, present here. And that we extend this willingness to listen uh, to our bodies, and to take care. And then in this area of the heart we can now uh, open ourselves to those who are close to us, those intimate and uh, ones that either we support or they support us in some way. It can be family or friends or pets. Uh, Those that uh, you have intimate Relations with, contact with. You can just name them. May they be happy. May they be peaceful. May they be healthy. May they be free. And then from those close to us, we can simply just open it up to this room. Uh, first, just for all of us here, just for our willingness uh, through this intention of our um, curiosity or uh, this kind of inner voice that uh, calls us to awaken, and then on out and. Uh, I'd like to extend it to those uh, 91 yogis up the hill who have been sitting here for six days, um, that they can also extend their peace to us uh, and our thankfulness for them being on the mountain right now, uh, for all our benefits. And then on out to the turkeys and the the deer and uh, all the creatures on this land. And then on out to uh, people in the city and out towards the beaches and north and south, uh, in all directions, so that uh, we acknowledge first our interdependence with the earth, the air and the water and uh, that we acknowledge uh, that interdependence. And then on out to uh, human beings and the, of all, known and unknown unto- to us in all directions, uh, that uh, we may all be in harmony with each other and with the earth uh, so that we can all live in peace. May all beings everywhere be happy and peaceful.